one of the ancient testimonies to the grace and mercy of God. Listen now for our scripture lesson from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence, and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all, all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. When I'm driving around in the car, which I do a lot of in Richmond and other places as I travel, uh, I am a sports radio junkie. Uh, especially as our political discourse has become increasingly more poisonous, I find myself gravitating more to sports radio. And there's three or four stations I really like to listen to. Um, and as my uh, family can attest, uh, I do it at all hours of the day. And of course, tomorrow the topic will be this, the devastating loss by the Virginia Wahoos. So I'm sorry for all present who are mourning that, as many of us are. Sometimes, uh, when there's a commercial, though, I can click up one station uh, at the end of the sports radio genre, and I get to a network known as the Joel Osteen Radio Network. For those of you who don't know, Reverend Osteen is the pastor of the Lakeview Church in Houston and one of the most prominent televangelists in the world. Sometimes I spin up the dial and I Uh, Before we all uh, have our immediate reaction to him, I actually find helpful, practical wisdom in his sermons on satellite radio. Some of his maxims make perfect sense as he offers us concrete advice on how to conduct our lives. For example, find good mentors and learn from them. Have a positive outlook on life and people will feed off your enthusiasm. Have a negative outlook and you're going to be known as a sourpuss. Who can argue with that? The other day after listening to Joel Austin, this is a true story, I actually got out of the car at the seminary and said to myself, I'm going to be my best self today. <laughs> I recently heard an excellent message from him on Sabbath observance. Quote, it's easy to work all the time, but that's doing yourself and the people around you a disservice. Even when God created the universe on the seventh day, God rested. Keeping Sabbath is one of the core requirements of Jewish and Christian tradition, and we don't tend to take it seriously enough. What if we really took a day off once a week to rest, spend time with our families, go to church and give thanks to God for our many... What if we unplugged from our devices for one day a week for reflection and quiet... 
In another piece of advice, Reverend Osteen talks persuasively about working through adversity. Sometimes your enemies will do more to promote you than your friends. They thought they were going to stop you, discourage you, intimidate you, but they didn't realize God used them to light a fire on the inside. Reverend Osteen also talks about God having a plan for each of our lives and everything ultimately coming out okay. Here is an excerpt from a recent sermon. God doesn't waste anything. It's all part of the process. The difficulties, the delays, the unfair situations. If we keep the right attitude, it's working for our good, close quote. Is that really true? Is everything that happens to us a function of our attitude? Does everything happen for an identifiable reason? Are there not some tragedies and occurrences that are inexplicable, even unfair? As I said, while I find value and insight in some of what I hear on this station, it's on this fundamental point that I part ways with this message. And a number of you present for worship have had difficult life experiences that back me up on this. There's a colleague of mine who I overlapped with at Yale uh, who teaches American religious history at Duke Divinity School named Kate Bowler, and Alec uh, preached on her recent book uh, quite effectively a few weeks ago, and I want to come back to it because Kate studies the so-called prosperity gospel that is exemplified by such pastors as Joel Osteen. She wrote a history of the movement and has done a fair and balanced assessment of the theology behind it about a year and a half ago. Kate was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and it is spread throughout her body. She was only 35 years old at the time of the diagnosis, with a young son not more than 4 years old. A cancer diagnosis at the beginning of her parenthood was certainly not part of Kate's plan, and she has a hard time understanding how it is part of God's plan. She's just written a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. She talks about the vague, know-it-all platitudes that she has received from complete strangers. People come up to her churches where she speaks, explaining that cancer is part of God's plan, that heaven simply needed another angel, or she must have been a terrible sinner in her life to deserve such a fate. She talks about the simplistic theology behind the prosperity gospel when something like cancer strikes. There are no setbacks, just setups. There are no trials, just tests of character, tragedies are simply opportunities to claim a bigger, better miracle. Especially because she works on the prosperity gospel, people come up to Kate all the time and tell her that her attitude will determine her destiny. So if she just keeps her chin up, everything's going to be okay in the end. A man named Joe from St. Louis came up and told her that heaven is her true home and so she shouldn't be upset about departing this sinful and broken world we inhabit Not wanting to leave her little boy behind so early in his life, Kate wanted to tell Joe from St. Louis that if heaven is her true home, maybe he'd like to go there first. (laughs) Others tell her that her cancer is a test of character as in the book of Job and she should maintain her faithfulness so she's not punished by God. What I find most remarkable about the book and her journey as she's out on the lecture circuit is she does not write from a place of bitterness. She talks about how blessed she's been by the love of her parents, her in-laws, and most of all, her husband, Zach, whom she has known since they were high school sweethearts, and her little boy, Tobin. She takes great delight in the many kind gestures people have done for her, and she offers helpful, concrete advice to those who want to be hospitable to family members and friends 
struggling with serious illness. She encourages us to reach out to them, not with self-righteousness or a know-it-all attitude, but in love and humility and kindness. Listen to them, buy them a gift, bring them a funny picture, give them a hug. Don't tell them heaven needs another angel. Tell them they're a beautiful person. In her reflection, Kate offers eloquent probes into the mystery of human existence. She talks of watching her son Tobin parade in on Palm Sunday last year, waving his frond and hoping he didn't poke anyone in the eye. She took profound joy in this moment while also wondering if it would be the last time she got to be present on Palm Sunday. Life is so beautiful, life is so hard, she writes. Our existence is a great mystery in many respects, and we can't always come up with reasons for why things unfold as they do. As Americans living in 2018, we often place too much value on control, thinking that if we just plan everything well and do our best, everything's going to come out okay in the end. But as Professor Bowler explains, we are, as Professor Bowler explains, we are addicted to self-rule. That is not the essence of the Christian faith. The Bible, our tradition, and the life of witness, the life and witness of Jesus Christ call not for control but surrender. Saint Teresa of Avila, the Christian mystic of the 16th century, writes: We can only learn to know ourselves and do what we can. Namely, surrender our will and fulfill God's will in us. This is one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith, and the liturgical season of Lent is when we confront the paradox more directly than ever. The entire self-motivational industry in our culture tells us that our destiny is in our own hands, and we better believe in ourselves and get going. Yet the God we meet in the Bible encourage us to surrender ourselves to something greater, more mysterious, where not all the answers can be found. So how precisely do we do that? Especially when it goes against every instinct we possess and most of the messages we see in our culture. One of the ways we surrender is by faithful daily prayer and an active spiritual life. I am often not as diligent in this area as I should be, and perhaps the same is true for many of you. I often let several days pass without carving time for prayer and silence. My kindergarten teacher, who passed away a few years ago, with whom I kept in touch over the years, gave me a prayer book shortly before she died that I still have on my desk. It's full of her underlines and reflections. The first prayer is for Sunday evenings. I acknowledge before you my faults and failures of the day that is now past. Too long, O God, I have tried your patience. Too often I have betrayed the sacred trust that you have given me to keep. You are still willing that I should come to you in lowliness of heart as I now do, beseeching you to drown out my transgressions in a sea of your own infinite love. The end of this prayer in the book my kindergarten teacher gave me, draws upon the timeless and beautiful language of Psalm 51, which I just read. One of the most eloquent prayers in the Bible or anywhere. In the scripture lesson, the psalmist surrenders to God, acknowledging his faults and need for forgiveness. The powerful language is worth repeating, even memorizing. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me 
a willing heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Psalm 51 recognizes that we are all sinners in need of healing and wholeness before God. Psalm 51 asks for renewal, to forgive the wrongs we have committed, and to purify us for right relations with God and with each other. Now we say every week in the confession of faith that we are sinners, and indeed we are. But the language of Psalm 51 gives us a specific vocabulary for understanding the contours of human sin. Through our mistakes, our selfishness, our faulty assumption that we ourselves can fix whatever is wrong with us, we pull away from God and minimize our sinfulness. Too often, we think of sin as situational. I certainly am guilty of this. What I mean by situational is that I think of specific crummy things I I have done in the last week and how these make me a terrible person. Often on Sunday mornings, I will think when we get to the point of the point of the service, I say, boy, I was a real jerk on Tuesday, so I better concentrate especially hard in the prayer of confession. Psalm 51 is not a prayer we pray because we did something especially wrong this past week. It's important because through it we recognize that sin is part of what it means to be human. And we return regularly to God in a gesture of repentance so that we can acknowledge our need for healing. We need Psalm 51 because we are always sinners, not just on Tuesdays, and our God is a God of grace. Sin is fundamental to what it means to be human. As James L. Mays, a friend and mentor to many of you as he was to me, he taught at Union Seminary for decades. He explains in his commentary on the Psalms, a sinner is simply someone who needs the grace of God. As we just sang in Amazing Grace. That is the evangelical truth about sin. All else that is said in the Bible and theology is elaboration and explanation. We are all sinners, and we require God's mercy and grace. Our sin and God's grace are the two most basic certainties in life. The relationship between sin and grace is fundamental to what it means to be Christian, and this is why we read Psalm 51 during Lent. Just as Jesus went out into the wilderness being exposed to all sorts of temptations and reflecting on what it means to be faithful before God, Psalm 51 gives us a framework and vocabulary for imitating his reflective journey and admitting that we are sinners in need of grace. I'm a professor and I like to delve into the trickier verses, so just give me a moment. There is a tricky question here if you paid attention to the psalm. Some people ask what the psalmist means when he declares, indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. Does this mean that we're born evil and that the act of childbirth in effect introduces another sinner into the world? That's not the point. The psalmist is referring to the idea that sin is a core aspect of what it means to be human. And we should acknowledge the inevitability and brokenness of our um, brokenness and tendency to stray from whatever God has in mind for us. There was a book and a movie that came out a few years ago that I know is a favorite of many of yours as it is of mine. Many of you read and saw it. It's called Unbroken. And it tells the true story of Louis Zamperini, a pilot whose plane crashed during World War II. Louis and two of his buddies actually floated in a raft after the crash for weeks, fending off sharks 
and starvation only to be captured by Japanese soldiers 47 days later. Then Louis endured severe trials in a POW camp, and he was marked as a special target by one of the prison officers, Corporal Watanabe, who engages in a series of humiliating and degrading acts against Louis, including torture. One of the reasons for this was because Louis was an Olympic athlete at the 1936 Games in Berlin, and the corporal used this as an excuse for mistreating him. But eventually the war ended, Louis survived, and he went back home and started a family. He experienced several years of hard drinking and justifiable anger at his captors. He was lost and afraid. Then in 1949, he attended a worship service led by a young pastor named Billy Graham. Now, we've been talking about Reverend Graham, and the legacy of Billy Graham in American religious life is complex, but there is no denying that he was successful in getting a number of people to re-examine their personal faith and acknowledge their sinfulness. It was at this service that Louis realized the importance of forgiveness, of surrendering himself to God and acknowledging his sinful nature. He remained unbroken by war and the persecution he endured. He never surrendered. But after the war, he engaged in a different kind of surrender. Surrender to God. He recognized the timeless language of Psalm 51 as applying to him. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Louis lived until he was 97 years old. He died just a few years ago. He shared his stories, and he helped out troubled kids in his hometown of Los Angeles. Kate Bowler decided to start cussing for Lent last year. You don't often hear of people deciding to start cussing for Lent. This was out of frustration And because she felt like being honest with her feelings about cancer and life would be a good thing. One of the best lines in her book is, Everyone is trying to Easter the crap out of Lent. (laughs) What she means by this, what she means by this is that we as Christians want to jump ahead to the empty tomb, the promise of eternal life, and what we ourselves get out of the miracle of resurrection. In other words, we have a tendency to skip Lent altogether. It's a consumerist attitude towards Christianity. What can we get from it? What do we get out of believing in Jesus? Psalm 51 reminds us we can't skip Lent. No matter our experiences, we are in need of God's saving grace. As sinners, we are in need of being purged with hyssop. Lent is a season to acknowledge mystery, uncertainty, and the necessity of surrender. We do not understand the reason or rationale for everything that happens to us and our family members and friends. We can't put all of human experience in a box, and we can't always count on secure timelines or arcs for the way our life story will unfold. Tragedy can strike at any moment, and we won't always know that reason or where God is in the process. Life can be so beautiful and difficult at the same time. We can follow the example our Savior took and remember his retreat into the wilderness and his period of reflection. We can remember that he prayed the timeless words of the psalmist, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
I usually can't let a sermon go by without talking about Hebrew or Greek at some point, so I will close with steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed, and it does not translate easily into English. It means loyalty, compassion, compassion, and an unbreakable bond. We are saved by God's hesed, by God's steadfast love, by God's unbreakable bond, a loyalty that never deserts us. As sinners, we do not deserve such a gift, but we are offered it nonetheless. All we have to do is acknowledge our brokenness and surrender. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Thanks be to God. Amen.